HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Want to cultivate farms and food systems that nourish, heal, and empower? Register now for PASA's 2024 Sustainable Agriculture Conference. Discover resources, services, and products at our expansive trade show, and explore more than 70 educational sessions on climate-smart practices, food justice, soil health, and more. Featuring a dynamic lineup of speakers, including Reginaldo Hasle Marroquin, farmer and founder of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance and CEO of Tree Range Farms, and Reverend Dr. Heber M. Brown III, pastor, community organizer, and founder of the Black Church Food Security Network. Find your community at PASA's 33rd Annual Conference in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 8th through 10th. Register now at pasafarming.org slash HRN2024. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash HRN2024. Welcome to Dyed Green. I'm Kate McCabe. And I'm Max Sussman. We're really excited. Oh, this is the first episode of the third year? First episode of year three. Technically, our third anniversary is in March, but still, 2023. I mean, 2024. (laughs) Where am I? So confused. Yeah. Wow, three years. I've never done anything for that long, except... Be with me. Yeah, stick with you. Pop. That's the champagne. (laughs) Wow, that's really cool. So, on today's show... are thrilled to bring you for the first episode of our third season on Die Green, Tom Leach and Mo McKeown from Dingle Sea Salt. Yeah, these guys are making sea salt in probably like the most eco-friendly way possible. You could describe it in a lot of ways. Traditional, eco-friendly, sustainable, right? It's a passive energy model. And it was really cool to hear about how they got started and what they do to make salt, which is like sort of not really that much in reality, but obviously requires a high level of it's, uh, yeah, efficiency it's passive, and skill. Passive yet labor intensive. Yeah, that's like the kind of thing that I'm really into. Interesting. Not sure where you're going with that, but um, Dingle Sea Salt is the only salt company on Ireland that makes their salt through solar evaporation. Yeah, it was really cool to talk to salt producers. That's the first for us, right? Absolutely. 
especially interesting because basically salt, fat, and acid are like the three most important ingredients in any dish. And honestly, aside from the fact that we need salt in our bodies to live and to thrive, try going without salt for a day, if not a meal. It's really hard, it's really hard to eat unsalted food. Apologies to people that are on low sodium diets or can't <coughs> eat it for other reasons. It is really, really hard. I love salt. Yeah, we love salt. Who doesn't love salt? Salt's something, it's one of those things that you take for granted until you stop and think about it, how yes, important it is. To so burn. much so that you would you even, you know, I wouldn't really think about it in terms of a, a seasoning. You know, it's almost like a given. Salt and pepper. You know, everything else is, is a spice or a seasoning, but those are just... Yeah, keep a little in your pocket, you know, just in case. I, You're out somewhere and you need salt. You know, I actually used to have... But, you know, before I met Max, I had a roommate who is now a, a successful chef and restaurant owner. I won't say the name of his restaurant or where it is um, or any other identifying characteristics. And I'm sure his cooking has improved in the many, many, many years since I knew him. But he did not cook with salt or any seasonings whatsoever because that is the way that his mother cooked for him when he was growing up. And can I tell you, wow. Well, I hope he's listening because these guys have salt. Anyway, Tom and Mo are friends and they are also surfing buddies. So they're avid surfers. They were introduced to each other by their wives who are already friends and... Uh, neither of them actually grew up in the Dingle area, but they fell in love with it. And they bring their knowledge of the ocean and the quality of the water, both from their scientific backgrounds and just from their love of spending time in the sea. So great they story. Have a really incredible and deep commitment to real sustainability, not the greenwashing kind, um, which you can tell both because of their commitment to solar evaporation, but also in terms of the quality of their packaging, the way that they're growing organically and staying small. I mean, they're really the real deal. And it was really interesting to talk to them about where they got the idea for the business and how they have been growing over the past couple of years. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Thanks for listening. Well, thank you both for coming on the show. We're really excited to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, really appreciate you reaching out to us. So we thought first you guys could give us a little story of how you met and started making salt. Sure. So um, I suppose originally our our, our partners were, were friends long before, long before we were. They were friends from childhood. And um, uh, we actually... I. I was living in New Zealand for a while with my partner and Mo was in Australia for, for a good while. And we actually all moved back to, well, let's say our partners moved back to to the Dingle Peninsula uh, at the same time about 10 years ago and, and brought us along with them. And um, I think it was a bit of a case of you like surfing, he likes surfing. So um, we, we went surfing together a few times. We were kind of matchmaked in that way. 
and um, that's how we that's how we sort of formed our friendship. Really, um, I mean, we've got kids of a very similar age that go to the same school, so we had a lot in common. Um, and uh, I suppose, yeah, that just kind of naturally evolved into uh, in, into a business out of it. But um, so yeah, we you know work together as well as um, hang out and play together. Mo, well, maybe you can tell us how the salt. How you know, did you guys start talking about salt right away? Yeah, yeah. Why why <laughs> salt? We're really interested. Because there's in. a lot of you know a lot of friends start surfing and then don't start sea salt businesses, right? So where that start? Yeah, that's a, that's a fair observation uh, for sure. Uh, look, we we kind of had an idea that we we'd like to look at doing something you know in the food space and the artisan space and sea salt was something at the time that wasn't being produced in this part of the world and and obviously dingle has a, a very good sort of global reputation as a, a food destination and there's a I guess there's no escaping salt where we live. Uh, you know, it's in the wind. Your cars get covered in it when you go surfing. It's, uh, you know, it's a part of life sort of where we are. It's pretty exposed down here on the, the very western edge of Europe. So we kind of bear the brunt of the weather and and the, the heavy seas. So it's, uh, look, it was kind of a logical thought for us. We saw a gap in the market, you know, at that time. And uh, we were really interested about how it was made in colder climates. Um, I'd been around that time on holidays in France on the Atlantic coast, where it's obviously uh, some of the the original sea salt making and some of the the most famous sea salts in the world come from you know the Ile de Ray region where where I was on holidays. So we we wanted to see you know is that something that could be made in Ireland? And you know we saw there were a few sea salt producers in Ireland at that time. We saw sort of learned that in colder climates, you have to um, artificially heat the water, essentially, you know, boil the water off and, and just leave the sea salt behind. And uh, we played around with that for, for a little bit and, you know, became clear to us, I guess, very early on that there's a huge carbon footprint associated with, with that way. You know, if you think about the volumes of seawater that have to be boiled, essentially, to, to produce a marketable amount of sea salt. So we uh, guess we went a little bit cold to the idea then because, you know, Tom and I would both be fairly environmentally conscious people. Uh, and it just seemed to us that it, it just wasn't a, a great way for, you know, to, why make sea salt in colder climates when it comes with such a huge carbon footprint, I think was the the conundrum that, that we faced. So we uh, kind of went away to, to think about it then for a while and kept going back to how it's made in, in France, where it's just open water, seawater lagoons, essentially, that they can just make the sea salt during the warmer months of the year uh, with the, the wind and the, the sunlight driving the evaporation. So uh, Tom has a lot of experience being an organic horticulturalist and has a lot of experience around polytunnels and has his own uh, organic produce stall and that. So uh, just sort of kind of put two and two together then, to be honest, you know, we, we realise how warm it gets in, in polytunnels during the summer. Uh, Tom had been uh, complaining one day, he forgot to leave the door of the polytunnel open and, you know, it got sort of 40, 50 plus degrees in there and all his tomato plants had withered. So we kind of, from there, just thought, well, could you put seawater in there and would it evaporate naturally? So we started to play around with it a little bit, like literally, 
a baking tray with uh, a liter of seawater in it was where we started in, in Tom's polytunnel and, and within a week or so that had evaporated off and we kind of thought that we might be onto something so uh, that that was really yeah how it all evolved you mentioned about salt being made in um, warmer climates um, you know at warmer time times of the year um, because of evaporation and I'm wondering, um, because Ireland has a colder climate, I know that you're maybe one of a handful of other small batch producing salt companies. So I'm wondering, you've described a little bit of how you make your salt, but how does that compare to what other people in other parts of the island are doing? Or, you know, what is that salt process like if you're not just kind of letting the heat and the sun um, evaporate the the water in a polytunnel? Yeah, I suppose... um the more i think traditional uh way of producing sea salt in, in colder climates would be to use a heat source to boil the the majority of the water off um trying to evaporate it off to to get to a point of a certain salinity um and then you start getting the salt crystals that form on the surface so there's a couple of different ways to do that some places would boil it off and in, in, in a pressure cooker sort of, sort of scenario to get it to that desired salinity and then at that point, then um, they'll be using something very similar to what we do, but more artificial and more controllable uh, in, in the sense that they'll use heat lamps and extract the fans to remove the humidity. And so the heat lamps then to sort of provide that temperature on the surface to, to encourage the, uh, the salt crystals to form. So we just take those same elements, but we use the natural version of those. So even though say, the more traditional way is, is to evaporate off with a heat source like that, we're, we're doing it in, I suppose, in the, the, the old, the, the really old way of doing it where we, we, we don't have access to those heat sources. So it's just the sun and the wind. So it sounds like it's pretty energy intensive or at least fairly. Yeah, it certainly would be. Um, it, it would certainly be one of the biggest, I think, costs to other businesses um, producing sea salt in, in regions like this. Energy, absolutely. Um, and obviously, there's the, the financial cost and then there's the, the environmental cost where that energy comes from. So, um, yeah, that's what we were trying to replace, basically. So for people that don't um, haven't Googled salt making or watched any videos, can you just describe your setup in like the simplest terms? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's essentially an evaporation tunnel. So from the outside, it would look uh, somewhat like a, a large scale uh, polytunnel that, that you might see people growing vegetables in. But it's it's been modified in a, a number of ways. Um you know, the most obvious, I guess, when you go in um, is that the, you know, the floor is completely covered. So it's a sealed food safe environment, essentially, and uh, would have a, an airlock door sort of going in where you'd get changed initially uh, before you, you step into the, the main tunnel, which we'd consider to be a sort of a clean food grade area uh, with its own dedicated equipment and, and PPE and that. So uh, once you step in, you'd essentially see what looked like sort of shallow pools um, in there with a food grade liner as the, the floor essentially of the, the evaporation tunnels. And then we, we have sort of specialized vents in place. Uh, you know, it's 
very low technology in some ways in terms of, you know, um, and just sort of building on your last question as well. The trade-off for us, I guess, is the the labor, It'd be a more labor intensive process the way we make it. Um, but also we're at the mercy of the weather and the seasons. So, you know, we can't produce our sea salt 12 months of the year. We can only do it really during the, the warmer periods from sort of April to about September. Uh, so in that sense, it's very low technology. You know, when the sun shines and the wind blows, we get good evaporation. And uh, if you've ever been to West Kerry, you'll realize that's sort of not every day of the year, unfortunately. But we uh, we just roll with the seasons uh, as best we can. But we do have a, a technological element to it in terms of monitoring the temperature, the humidity, uh, both of which will affect the evaporation rate and in turn then will affect the, the, the crystal formation as well. So we monitor all that through uh, sensors. And then we have a, a ventilation system that helps us to try and optimize when the, the temperature is high and the humidity is high, then we try and clear that humidity to get the, the optimum evaporation rates when we can. So it, it's that sort of balance of, of sort of old and, and new. So I wanted to ask you a question about water quality, because I know that's something that's also important to you and that you have a number of different spots where you go to harvest water that you do use. Um, But maybe before you answer that question, if you could just talk a little bit about surfing in Ireland, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I know that a lot of our listeners wouldn't think of, you know, despite being an island nation with a lot of rocky cliffs and whatnot, a lot of people don't think about Ireland as a place where people go surfing. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that and then how those things kind of link up together, how uh, that surfing, that knowledge of, of the water and the waves gives you any particular insight to the salt business. I'll just start by saying Tom's happy to talk about surfing all day. So uh, you, you might want to put a time limit on it and I'll, I'll hand over to Tom for that I'll, part. I'll, 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 happily, I'll happily talk about the surfing part and then I'll definitely hand over to you, Mo, for the water quality. That's, um, that's, definitely, uh, that's, that's definitely your area of, of, of experience. Um, no, surfing in Ireland is, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it is different to other parts of the world. We both, I say we both, um, we've both surfed in different places, namely Australia, New Zealand, and uh and various places around asia as well and um yeah warm water surfing is is lovely it's it's really nice and not having to put a wetsuit on just going out in board shorts it's 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 fantastic it takes a little bit more preparation here um we surf in the summer but the best waves are are often in the winter um and it gets a lot colder in the winter as as you know um so yeah it, it involves wearing normally sort of five mil of, of neoprene in the form of a wetsuit and boots and gloves and a hood. It, it's the wind really that, um, that, that, that really cools you off in the water here, even, even if the water temperature is not so cold. So you have to do the, the conversion, but it, it sort of gets to around about eight, eight, nine degrees um, in, in the winter in the water, but it's, it's, it's the wind that, that really cools you down. So, but the, the winter is where the best waves can be found. Um, we get big swells out in the Atlantic that come over from your side. And uh, by the time they get here, hopefully they've cleaned up a little bit and not so messy. Um, and yeah, I mean, all along the West Coast of here, don't tell anybody, but there's some really great spots for surfing and the cold water keeps a lot of people away. But uh, it's not it's not that much of a secret if you know where to go. But um, yeah, no, it's a great place to surf. And uh, unlike uh, unlike surfing in, in, in places like Australia, 
there's just nobody to if there's someone out now so someone else out in the water with you you wave to them you give them a smile it's great to see them whereas over in australia just you're you're barging past people you're elbowing them out the way and uh so it's, it's, a, it's a completely different vibe um but yeah that does lead into um that knowledge of the water knowledge of the tides and the swells um definitely leads into um the choices we make where we collect our water from and obviously water quality is the you know the biggest the biggest driver when we're looking for places to get, get the water from and, and then the sea salt um and Mo will tell you about that yeah, I, I think that's pretty much it, that the, the two really, you know, are married together. So we know with certain swells and certain winds, you know, the ocean will be a bit stirred up and the water can be a little murky. So we we, we know where sort of the sheltered spots are and the clean spots. And we, we would have done, you know, obviously full analysis of our product. And, um, you know, salt itself is inherently uh, microbiologically sound in terms of you know it being used as a preservative for for thousands of years and essentially the the penultimate stage in what we do is sort of a, a hot briny liquid before the the crystals form so uh, certainly any microbiological concerns are are taken care of at that stage so you know we're we're quite lucky where we live and the quality of the ocean and and that so uh, yeah it's sort of reflected in the the taste and the, the quality of the end product we feel I have a question that just popped into my head. I don't know if this is, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but is there a history of sea salt making um, that goes back a ways in Ireland? Like how, how traditionally have people, you know, let's say pre-modern times uh, gotten salt into their diets? If that's a question that you know the answer to, I know, you know, that there were, that salt making was sort of concentrated in, in a few areas and then was traded around, but have people been making salt in Ireland for a long time or is this like a new thing? No, I think there is a, a history there. Um, there was a couple of sort of, you know, I won't say industrial, but sort of large scale salt producing along the West Coast, I think particularly up around Ackle uh, or, or just the mainland part of Ackle as well. Um, and yeah, like you said, that was traded around Ireland then. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was, um, as I said, necessity being the mother of, of all invention, I guess, uh, but it, it would have traditionally been made by by heating the seawater for sure. Um, I mean, the only other way it occurs naturally, I guess, is uh, rock pools where uh, the, the, the seawater evaporates. So uh, on a sort of small household scale, I guess, yeah, that could have been a source as well, but uh, it, it always would have been made in Ireland by, um, yeah, by, by heating, as far as I'm aware. I feel like this is maybe a little bit more of a, chef question. So I'll just go ahead and, and try to ask it and maybe Max can chime in. Um, but I'm just curious about the flavor of the salt. And I, I would imagine, you know, that the flavor of dingle sea salt has to do with the flavor. You know, there's a terroir of salt maybe that it that is um, maybe natural to carry so that if you were to taste salts from different parts of Ireland, they might have slightly different flavors. But you know, aside from maybe mixing in other spices or ingredients like garlic salt or, or things that other people do. Um, is there any kind of a way to influence or control uh, the flavor? And is that something that you do or or have thought about doing for your brand? Yeah, certainly. So I suppose the biggest the biggest factor in the in, in the flavor of salt um, is, is is where you get it from and the minerals that are available in, in, in that area. 
um, that obviously then form form the sea salt. Um, so we found that. Um, so during our journey, we've tried a lot of different salts from different places, um, different countries, and yeah, I think absolutely. There's, we, you know, there is a there's a very distinct difference between those different different salts, uh, and I think that can predominantly be put down to say the minerals available in where where the water is collected from. Um, I think more lately we've been um, we've been looking into the differences in the way it is produced and how that affects the flavor. We know from ourselves that it heavily affects the texture um, depending on the conditions and how it's produced. We we have quite a wide variety of, of textures that come out of our, our evaporation tunnel depending on the time of year uh, and, and just, just the way the weather's been for those past that past week while it's been sat in there. Um, and there's certain things that we can do to affect that texture whether it's slowing down the evaporation by allowing the humidity to build up a little bit more or speeding up the evaporation. And we go in and we agitate the ponds to make sure that the crystals aren't forming too quickly and things like that. So there's certainly ways that we can affect the texture. And again, whatever heat source you're using to, to evaporate the water off that, that would be the same. We've also sort of been looking at the, how that affects the flavor though. And um, it's still anecdotal uh, as much as anything, but there, there's something in the the way the different methods of production and and then the, the flavor that you get out of it and the atten- intensity even when the salt you know the, the water has come from the same the same place and we've done our own experiments we've tried side by side through you know through different heating methods um i think part of the benefits of our production method is when we evaporate the water off we evaporate and we just have the salt remaining so all of the minerals end up in the salt that's not always the case where the uh, salt crystals are rising to the surface and scooped off because you get some of the minerals that will sink to the bottom and you you may not get those minerals in there. So we think that has a, a, an effect on the flavor, but um, yeah, predominantly texture definitely makes a big difference. And, and as you know, being a chef, the texture and flavor are very, very heavily linked. And um, obviously then the use for the salts you know, changes depending on the texture that you get. Yeah, the restaurant that I'm working at right now, we just went through about two weeks where we were not able to get our um, preferred brand of just kosher salt, you know, just the regular salt that we use for everything. And like it threw people, it threw all the cooks off so much that we ended up getting quite a bit of, um, there were a higher level of complaints about salt, whether something being too salty or not salty enough, just from the, sh- and it was because the shape of the other salt that we were getting was so different that people were not, you know, seasoning meat the same way, or, you know, a teaspoon was a different amount because the crystal shapes were different. So it's definitely makes a huge, it makes a big difference <laughs> for sure. Definitely. We've been led by, we've been led by chefs locally and um, really on, on in that area is not certainly not an area of expertise for, for either of us. So that's been really pivotal for us to, to get that feedback from, from really good local chefs, um, especially about the texture again and, and the uses for the different textures and, and marrying, marrying the salt that we have with the dish that they want to produce is, is, is something that we're, we're learning an awful lot more about. 
Yeah. So are you, in addition to the very uh, beautifully packaged retail jars, are you also selling to restaurants and chefs in more of like a wholesale or bulk situation? Um, I suppose at the moment, because of the way we produce it, we, we can only produce a finite amount. Um, and then we run out, we run out. Um, up to this point, this has been our first full year at a, a full-scale production um, where we, we scaled up we, we, we installed the, the tunnel last year and we got, we got last season out of it, but this year we really hit the ground running. So we focused definitely on the retail side of, of the business. And, and, and thanks very much for your kind words about the jars. That, that was definitely, yeah, that's an area we'd love to talk about and, and, and some of our reasoning behind the jars. But um, so far we have um, tentatively sort of supplied a few local restaurants with, with salt more on a more of a bespoke basis as opposed to supplying them for all of their salt with sort of looking at a signature dish uh, things like that where the salt that we produce will go further for them and they'll be able to get the benefit of that we just wouldn't be able to compete at the moment with with some of the bigger salt producers on price and obviously a lot of chefs are you know they have to be led by price to a certain extent but using those signature dishes it's been a way to sort of allow us to sort of open up that dialogue with chefs and, you know, and ask them how they would use this salt. And then obviously we get the, uh, we get the benefit of them of, of, of sort of featuring on their menus. Yeah. Um, going back to texture for a little bit. So I guess there's like, in my salt mind, there's the sort of very flaky, you know, flaky crystals that are like really big, like crunchy, um, maybe like Malden type salt. And then there's the sea salt that's more like sandy, like it's almost has, it almost feels like it's uh, a little bit wet still, like a gray salt. And then there's the really fine table salt. So where do you all, where does your salt fit in on that? Um, and is the texture of your salt, um, was that an intentional, um, something intentional or is that a result of your production process in other words yeah it's it's a great question and look i guess we we feel we sort of sit on the middle of that spectrum uh to be honest um you know we're quite different to your sort of uh, very fine table salt um as you've described you know our basically ours is a, we feel about as natural as it can be um you know there, there's nothing added there's no artificial heat uh you certainly don't add any anti-caking agents or bleaching agents or or anything like that so you know we we don't get that sort of dry powdery salt that you would with, with table salt and you also don't get sort of some of those more uh, you know chemical style flavors that you would with some of those artificial agents that are are um are there so it would be a little bit like the um you know the slightly moist again sea salt should be naturally moist that's it absorbs moisture from the atmosphere you know that's part of um part of its natural uh, state, uh, I guess. And there's been a little um, education around that as well. I think particularly in Ireland, people are used to, to sea salt being sort of bone dry from, from start to finish if, if you were using a table salt. So, you know, whereas what you've described uh, would be common in France, your salt is quite damp, it's it's quite gray, it's absorbed clays from the, the bottom of the, the lagoons that they use in France. And, and that's all part of the, the, the natural package so we do certainly find that the texture can change during the year, largely due to the, the rate of evaporation and the, the um, humidity that's there as well. So, um, you know, we found that it's easy to make salt 
the way we do if you want to just sort of dry it in, in any sort of um, polytunnel style uh, thing, uh, which is fine. Um, but what took us, you know, we were about three years in product development before we actually launched. And part of that was the fact we could only work for four or five months of the year experimenting, uh, but also to, to make what we feel is a sort of a, a premium sea salt takes time and it, it takes that sort of intervention where it's needed to, you know, to agitate the ponds or to recognize when certain parts of the ponds are, are drying maybe quicker than others and sort of blending it and trying to influence that crystal formation as best you can. Uh, a lot of it's out of our hands too, but uh, we, we do what we can just to encourage it and, and to end up then with what we feel is a kind of a balanced texture between fine sea salt, you know, fleur de sel, and also the, the coarser sea salt that would be out there as well. So. so it sounds like from everything that we've talked about so far that you've put so much thought and intention into building the business according to your values, um, one of which is clearly a commitment to sustainability. I would love to hear a little bit more about ways in which um, you're doing that with your business. I know we mentioned very briefly packaging, so I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. And I'm also wondering, um, I know you also both come from a science background, if you could maybe mention where your environmental enthusiasm or you know what you believe your inspiration is for that commitment or, or where that came from for you. Sure. I mean, again, <laughs> go back to surfing, I suppose. I mean, we our, 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 our favorite our favorite pastime involves being immersed in the natural environment, and, and I suppose we're all too aware of certainly sea pollution and, and, and the microplastics, just how much of a bane that is, and obviously on on the wildlife um, that, that we that we see when we're out in the water or where you know. I suppose it's that's for us. It, was the biggest driver that we didn't want to do more harm. We didn't want to add to, to, to plastics. We didn't want to add to pollutions making their way into the sea, um, which was the driver for us to sort of develop the business and have as little impact as possible. Um, and that's really what's anchored us from the very beginning. Every decision that we make, we, we, we try to sort of, we, we factor that in as, as part of the cost of doing business obviously there's certain things we have to do that will always have an environmental impact but those decisions are always made consciously um so yeah i think the the, the packaging was is a great example of where we we needed to obviously present it in a safe and uh appealing way but we we didn't want to contribute to the plastics ending up in the sea. We didn't want to use something that was going to be thrown away straight away. And we also, because of the way we produce our sea salt and the, sort of the premium nature that we're aiming for, we wanted to make sure that the packaging reflected that as well. So we, we sell it in um, ceramic jars they, with cork lids. And our, our, our whole ethos behind that is that they will be reusable and People will want to reuse them. They won't. They're, they're too nice to throw away. A lot of things say they're reusable, but then people seem to be just as happy to, to dispose them as, as well. Whereas our, our jars, we really, we really design them that people would be happy to keep them on the table. And at the end of once they've run out of salt, um, they wouldn't want to throw them away. So then, in order to, to counter that, we have um, also 
uh, launched a compostable refill pouch that people can purchase and then they can use that to then top up their jars they already have or whatever they want to put our salt into. Um, but then those those pouches are fully compostable. They got in, so there's no plastics at all used in in in, in any of our packaging. Um, the cork lids are um, we we they're obviously they're they're biodegradable themselves, but they they get years and years of life out of them. And then we tie them with hemp string on top, which again uses less pesticides than cotton and things like that and our, our printers that we use everything's vegetable based inks and non-acrylic glues because again there's even there's microplastics in, in in most labels and glues we didn't realize until we started on this road just how hard it is to eliminate plastics from packaging and we were talking to packaging companies and saying okay but what what glue do you use in your labels and they didn't have a clue and so it's been an education for us and it, but it's also given us an opportunity to chat to some of these packaging companies and say what you currently have is, is no good for us you know and we're not the only people asking for better packaging and for for less disposable packaging and, and, and more compostable options and um yeah even since we've been we've been down this road three years the technology is moving forward really quickly um, in, in that area of compostable packaging. And now there's, you know, plant-based PLA liners uh, and things like that that will compost down within three months. But, they, you know, they provide a very effective alternative to, to using some of those plastics. So that's really that's really the driver for us anyway. Like every decision we make, we, we try and weigh up the environmental costs of, of that decision. And then I, I seem to recall there was a, a time recently where, you ran out of the ceramic containers and you decided that you'd stop. You, you didn't want to switch to something else just to fill in the gap. Is that true? Yeah, that was um, uh, probably the most difficult business decision we, we've had to make, to be honest. Um, we were close to 12 months out of our primary packaging. So, um, you know, it we looked at alternatives um, and, you know, the, the obvious alternative, I guess, would be glass. And, you know, it is, of course, recyclable. But not all glass gets recycled. And sometimes the, the cost of transporting glass in bulk and the, the temperatures needed to, uh, you know, recycle it and reform new glass, you know, can be significantly higher. So you start sort of looking at the whole kind of life cycle of these things and, and things that you, you think seem like a sustainable option all of a sudden seem less sustainable or, or otherwise. So we, uh, yeah, we, we just took that decision to, to stick to our guns and we had our um, secondary packaging, which is our intended to refill our, our ceramic jars. Um, but we were very lucky with some very supportive local uh, stockists and suppliers uh, who were very happy to um, to, to sell the, the refill pouches. Um, uh, we just advise our consumers that because we don't use plastic in it, once you purchase the refill pouch, it has to be put in an airtight container. Um, and people seemed... Uh, very happy to make that decision. We had to get special cards printed to let people know how the secondary packaging should be used. And I think both Tom and I were really pleasantly amazed that, you know, not just return customers, but how many new customers were happy to make 
that choice and to live with what we felt and hoped would be a minor inconvenience for uh, consumers to buy the the refill pouch and to put it in an airtight jar at home and use it as you would normally. So uh, that was, yeah, that was great to be able to sort of keep our heads above water during that period. Uh, We sourced a new supplier for our ceramic jars. So uh, yeah, we're back now, back uh, fully stocked, which is great. It seems like you treated it as an as an opportunity to let your customers know what's important to you as opposed to a way, you know, the alternative would have been to sort of backtrack on your commitments. Um, So it's nice to hear that they responded positively to that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think Tom (laughs) and I have often kind of half joked kind of not joking that will probably be the rock we we die on as a business at some point but uh look i think once people understand and you take that time to to make people aware of your decisions and and, and what impact it, it has you know people are very understanding which actually blew us away if if we could be honest you know we we sort of thought that it would be very difficult to um pick things up where we left off when our jars arrived, but we just kept our, our stockists um, updated with where we were at and, and why we were at these delays. And, you know, we, we pretty much um, hit the ground running when they arrived a, a few months ago, which was just amazing. The support we received was, was huge for us. What was the process like for the two of you to start this business? Um, is that something that you had had pre- any previous experience with? And in particular, I'm curious what it was like, um, like how you found working with, say, like new regulatory agencies in Ireland, um, whether they whether the uh, government infrastructure was helpful to you or was it a challenge to get approval? I'm just really curious about that whole part of the, the process. And in particular, I would imagine there's um, maybe a lot more standard process for something like opening a cafe or opening a restaurant where there's like many, many, many examples of that versus something that you're doing, which is maybe a little more unusual. There's not that many uh, businesses doing exactly what what you do, making salt. So, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Sure. Yeah. And it, yeah, we, well, no, we had no experience <laughs> setting up a business like this when we started Um so we, it, it was a COVID business without doubt. COVID allowed us to have the time to look into this and it gave us the, the opportunity to be able to do some online courses of branding and marketing and setting up food business. Um, we went through a, went through a six month course with, um, one of the, one of the sort of the national retailer. They had a, a program that brings small retailers through. That was absolutely invaluable for learning about all the things that we didn't know we needed to even know. Um, so that was that was brilliant. And then we've also been really lucky to avail on a few people that have helped us out along the way. Some business mentors that, from a lot of time, from kindness of their for their own hearts, they've they've helped us along and um, and and sort of helped help us with things like business plans and and, and presenting them. In, in that way, without them, we 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 wouldn't have had a clue. And then there's been some there's been some great um, government supports for us as well. We've um, there's uh, Udros Udros Nagueltok. They would be like the the, the enterprise office for for, for Irish speaking areas, um, and they've been great with business supports. And Bordis Kravara, there they would be the sort of the, the fisheries um, departments. 
Um, and again, they provided funding and and also um, mentoring for us to, to sort of get up to this stage, which has been brilliant. And then when it comes to regulation and things, then absolutely, there's, there's certainly been a few times where the, the square peg hasn't fitted into the round hole, so to speak. And it, it's, and I suppose the natural reaction is to say no if, when, when these things are not, not fully understood. But we, we haven't really come up, up against that as much as we thought we might. Um, once we've explained what we're doing and been able to explain it in, in, in a context that makes sense, you know, whether it be planning regulations or food safety or anything like that, once we've explained what we're doing, been open and transparent and allowed them to come out and see what we're doing, it, it, it's, yeah, no, it's, there's been solutions to any of those issues that, we, we, that we've come up against. So, so far, no, we found everybody really great to work with. And um, I say, once they understand what we're doing um, and they get their heads around solar evaporation in Ireland, <laughs> um, that's that's the biggest challenge is just, just, just explaining that, yes, we do it and yes, it works. And you're just going to have to trust us that, that, that we do get enough sunlight. We, we do, we do. How do you see yourselves growing uh, with keeping in mind your commitment to sustainability. Obviously, you know all the ways you could do things faster and produce more, but those don't all fit within your ethos. So, um, you know, are you going to keep it? Yeah, like, will you just... Yeah. It, look, it's a good question. We're we're sort of growing. Um, you know, I don't want to say organically. It sounds like a, a pun in a way, but it's you know we yeah we certainly want to grow the business to be financially sustainable as well and sort of not buy it off more than we can chew. Um, I think yeah the the very slowly slowly approach we've taken to to product development and and making sure that that what we had could scale, you know, has certainly benefited us in terms of making that move from you know the the baking trays in tom's polytunnel to to having a pilot scale small evaporation tunnel uh, initially for a year and then to the full scale tunnel and you've um uh, hit the nail on the head there that, that what we do is modular so uh you know to expand essentially we can build more evaporation tunnels um you know they're they're quite inexpensive and quite straightforward to to put together and um, we extract the seawater is all done uh, off grid as well we we have a um, a battery powered pump uh, that the, the the battery is charged off solar panels so you know we can certainly increase that capacity fairly straightforward as well so you know the uh, the labor we've touched upon is sort of the opportunity cost of the way we do business um, in terms of how labor intensive it is. Everything's done by hand, you know, the harvesting, um, uh, everything's hand packaged. We, we hand write uh, on each jar that goes out. We hand tie uh, each jar. We hand stamp each pouch. So, you know, we like having that level of uh, I guess, quality control over what we do, you know, in terms of every single jar that goes out, 
because it's done by hand, there, there's really no no margin for for there to be any quality control issues. And you know, it also makes each jar, each pouch, a little bit unique as well. Um, obviously, I'm left-handed and a little bit more clumsy, so you can know which refill pouches that I've stamped versus Tom's and uh, and otherwise. So yeah, look, we, we sort of want to hang on to that element of the business for for as long as we can. You know, um, we we will and have been experimenting with sort of different product types, different flavor ranges. But we, we've also made a commitment that all of those ingredients, you know, would be sourced locally. Um, as mentioned, Tom's the, the one with the green fingers and grows all his own um, fruit and vegetables at home. So, you know, we'd hope that, that Tom would be growing most of what we'd need for, for flavored ranges in the future. But we also have a, you know, a, a wealth of producers on the Dingle Peninsula, not far from here, where we could locally source anything that, that we don't have ourselves. So, you know, I think it'll be a very slow growth process, but it'll, as you say, be in line with, with everything we, we want to achieve from a sustainability perspective. Well, I um, we just had our solar panels installed in our home and uh, they're not hooked up yet, but in the next couple of weeks and I've been making um, bagels as a side project. So maybe we would do a collaboration with your solar powered salt and our solar. <laughs> Excellent. Sea salt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I love it. Fantastic. Great idea. <laughs> Ethical Great idea. We'd have, to get the, sure. we'd have to get the salt here, you know. We could do like a, a sailboat sail, or something. Yeah, we could do one of those yeah, big, yeah. big sailboats. I don't know how we get the bagels. Like a pirate back to ship, you maybe a, a pirate ship. Yeah. Um, yeah. They might be a little dry by the time. Yeah. You'd have to come over with the salt on yeah. the... Yeah. Could try the old message in a bottle approach. I'm sure it'll get to you if yeah. we put your name and address on it. <laughs> cool. Do you have any questions, Kate? No, I think that's it. That's cool. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, thank you both so much. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks for your interest. It's been great to chat to you. So thank you. Dyed Green is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission it is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at diedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.